The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder the soul and the spirit and the joints from the marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Before we begin our study this evening, we need to make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word, for the fact that it gives us a clear insight into the events of history and how to interpret the events of history, even when we are living in their midst. Father, we pray that now as we study your word that we would gain insight from it, be reminded of the fact that history is your plan. You are working out your plan, and you are in control of the details of history. And it gives us that that vantage point from which to observe objectively the events of our own day. Father, we pray that you would help us to be challenged by the things that we study as they relate to our own uh, mental attitude of relaxation in you, even in the midst of chaos. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We have been studying in Daniel 8 about Antiochus Epiphanes, and Antiochus Epiphanes uh, as a was prophesied in Daniel 8. Now, there are going to be other prophecies we'll get to in Daniel uh, uh, 10 and Daniel 11 that relate to Antiochus Epiphanes as well. Antiochus Epiphanes was one of the Seleucid uh, rulers or rulers of the Seleucid Empire, the Seleucid Dynasty, one of the four divisions of the Greek Empire after Alexander the Great died. Uh, as we studied the last time, Antiochus Epiphanes was... Uh, concerned about consolidating his empire, and he had to pay back these reparations to Rome after the defeat by Rome militarily, reparations that were just about on the same level of extremity as as the conditions that the uh, Western Allies put down on Germany in the um, armistice of 1918 after World War One, And it was so rough and so onerous and so difficult for uh the Syrian Empire under the Seleucids to come up with the bucks that they had to, they were raiding the temples which were served as the the banks the depository people savings in the ancient world and he was also invading down through Israel and taking control of Judea that, that culminated in one of the most horrendous acts of blasphemy in the ancient world when he established, he put a statue of Zeus into the Jewish temple in Jerusalem and sacrificed a pig on the altar. And that is called in the 
in the uh, uh, book of Maccabees, in First Maccabees, the abomination of desolation. That's the phrase Jesus picks up in Matthew 24 when he warns the Jews in the tribulation period that when they see the abomination of desolation take place, which will occur halfway through the tribulation, we'll get the details of that when we get into Daniel 9 in a couple of weeks. But halfway through the tribulation, that takes place, and that's a sign that the Jews are to flee, that, that all of the, that last series of bowl judgments in Revelation are about to come, come to pass, which culminate in the battle of Armageddon. So, Antiochus Epiphanes becomes in the, in the scripture, a, a type of the Antichrist. You look at Antiochus Epiphanes, and we can see some of the elements, some of the characteristics, some of the qualities that are also going to be present in the Antichrist when he appears on the scene during the tribulation. Now, one of those characteristics is anti-Semitism. And the reason is that there is a conspiracy. You know, we all hear these all kinds of conspiracy theories in the world that it's the uh, this group or that group. or uh, But there is a conspiracy, and the great conspirator is Satan. And he is always trying to destroy God's plan. And he knows that God has made promises in the Old Testament to to the Jews, and they have never been fulfilled. And so at the core of anti-Semitism, or what actually lies behind anti-Semitism, is Satan's attempt to destroy the Jews so that he can prove that God cannot fulfill his promises. God is an inadequate God, and then if, then Satan can win. So that's what underlies all of that. So all anti-Semitism, both the kind that was expressed by uh, the Seleucids, by Antiochus Epiphanes and Hitler, and all the way down through human history, is all is all uh, energized by Satan. And there's no group, no religious group on earth more anti-Semitic, more antagonistic to the Jews, more uh, hateful towards the Jews than Islam. And that is what underlies so much of what's going on today. Every night we turn on the news and we hear about another 20, 30, 40 Palestinians or Israelis that are blown up by a couple of suicide bombers over in Israel. And the violence has intensified in this latest intifada. Now, intifada is a term that means uprising. And it's this, there have been several intifadas over the last 20 years. And this latest one began in September a, a year ago. And it is important to understand how that fits into the overall picture of what happened on, on September 11th because uh, we still ask that question, why did September 11th happen? And I think for a lot, and the more I reflect on it, the further we get away from it, the more we have an opportunity to reflect on Scripture. I think as, as things happen in history, God did that for probably a number of reasons, not all of which are, are obvious to us at, at this particular point. But what we need to understand is that this fits within the anti-Semitic agenda of Islam. For example, well, that's, there we go. For example, in, uh, on September the 4th, 1996, Osama bin Laden issued a statement to his uh, call to arms to his fellow Muslims. He stated, my Muslim brothers of the world, your brothers in Palestine and in the land of the two holy places, and that's, that's Saudi Arabia, are calling upon your help and asking you to take part in fighting against, uh, fighting against the enemy, your enemy and their enemy, the Americans and the Israelis. See, in their mind, we are intimately connected. In fact, I'd say that Israel is probably the only true ally the U.S. has. 
They are asking you to do whatever you can with one means and ability to expel the enemy, humiliated and defeated out of the sanctities of Islam. So uh, removing, this has to do with removing the Americans out of Saudi Arabia because he was aggravated that uh, and angered and offended that had religious antagonism because of uh, the presence of American military forces on Saudi land. But it goes beyond that. It is seen as intimately connected to uh, what's happening in Israel. And what we see here is the issue is really Israel. Then in 1998, they, five of these um, Islamic leaders issued a fatwa, which is a religious proclamation, calling for um, a holy war, uh, a jihad. And this was signed by bin Laden and uh, al-Zawahiri, who's the leader of Egyptian jihad, a leader of the Islamic jihad, another leader of uh, a... Um, a terrorist organization made up of Pakistanis and then one from Bangladesh. And in that, they state that the purpose of this is to liberate the Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Holy Mosque, which is in uh, Saudi Arabia. Now, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. So they see from their perspective, and see, no matter what else we do as a nation, we as Christians, we better understand why these things are happening and why they're happening is determined by why the, the people who are perpetuating this say it's happening. And it is happening to liberate the Temple Mount. That is the reason. It's not about American capitalism. It's not about American power. It's not about envy, uh, American envy over our envy for Americans because of all of their uh, possessions or because of their power, anything like that. All that's a smokescreen. Don't get caught up in any of these crazy Marxist or psychological interpretations of history. It is all about the Temple Mount and keeping that from the control of the Jews. A week after the attacks, al-Qaeda issued the following statement. We say to Bush the father, son, former President Clinton, Blair, and Israeli Prime Minister Ariel Sharon, who were at the head of the Zionist criminals and crusaders, who have committed the worst crimes against millions of Muslims. See, remember this. They think that the very fact that we support Israel in their presence in the land means that we have attacked Islam. That means everything that they're doing is viewed from the perspective of self-defense. And that gives them the right to do whatever they deem necessary in order to defend themselves. That we will avenge them. The truth is that Bush is an agent of Israel. He sacrifices his people and his economy for them, the, uh, the Israelis, and helps them occupy the land of Muslims. The storm will not calm, especially as long as you, the United States, and Britain do not end your support for the Jews in Palestine. Palestine. We tell and recommend Muslims in the United States and Britain and those who reject the American policies uh, not to take uh, airplanes, not to take airplanes and not to live in towers and high buildings. In fact, the Palestinian Authority has stated in their own elementary school textbooks that the Palestinian conflict with Israel and America are two branches in the general total global war of Islam against the West and all other religions. That's in an elementary school textbook, so they're brainwashing these kids, and that's why last night I saw an interview on one of these uh, news shows where uh, <clears throat> they were interviewing a bunch of college student, Palestinian college students in Lebanon, and they were saying, you know, there's no real religious motivation here. We just want to have our land back. You know, the Jews stole our land. 
But see, they, they, they've been, they have not been told the truth and they don't understand the dynamics. And we need to be able to answer that question. Do they have a rightful claim to the land? Who are the Palestinians? And is there a rightful claim to the land or is this purely something that is a religious motivation motivated, uh, by hatred? So in light of all these statements, we cannot turn a blind eye to the fact that it is Israel, the very existence of Israel, in the land and the residents of Jews living in freedom in a land that God gave them 3,000 years ago that is the real heart of the reason that America was attacked on September 11th. As part of that, we have to ask and answer several important questions like, why is Israel important? Why is it that the whole world is really focused on, on this whole war right now and the issue is not just Israel, it's Jerusalem and it's the Temple Mount? And why is that important? Why is Jerusalem so important? Why is the Temple Mount so important? We need to answer some briefly some questions about God's plan for Israel and also ask if the, and answer um, the questions about the Palestinians' claim to the land that is now known as Israel. As a preface to this, we have to go back to the Old Testament and look at God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. We've covered all of this in detail. If you don't, uh, if some of this is new to you, you need to go back and get the tapes from the Dispensations and Covenant series. But I'm just going to briefly remind you of this. In Genesis 12:1, the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And that clause should really be translated from the Hebrew. The one who treats you lightly I will judge harshly. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. And then in verse 7, God reiterates, To thy seed, that is to his descendants, I will give this land. So God promised the land, and in Genesis chapter 13 he descri- and Genesis 15, he describes the boundaries of the land. And the boundaries of the land are such that they go from approximately this area here. There's the Wadi Koresh, which is considered by most scholars to be the correct identification of the river of Egypt, all the way to the Euphrates. And the Euphrates is the left of these two blue lines here. These two blue lines represent the... Uh, Euphrates River on the west and the Tigris on the on the east and all of this land in between from the Mediterranean to the Euphrates, what makes up much of modern Syria, all of modern Jordan, uh, and much of Iraq is all part of the land that God promised to Israel in the original land grant to, to Abraham and which was then later reiterated to him in uh, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 and 29. And there also is the promise that God would bring them back to the land once they were taken from the land. And there, especially in Deuteronomy 28 and 29, God promised that in discipline he would remove them from the land and he would return them to the land. And in the context, he's talking to the whole nation. Now, there, remember, we studied that God took the nation out in the fifth cycle of discipline. The northern ten kingdoms of Israel went out in 722 B.C. when the Assyrians came down. 
and then the southern kingdom went out in 586 B.C., and that's when uh, Nebuchadnezzar came in and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. They began to return in 535 B.C. We've talked about that in our study of Daniel. But that's not the, the return that these prophecies foretell because they only a segment of the of, of the of the tribes return to Judea, not the whole tribes return. I want you to pay attention to two key prophecies in Zechariah. Or before we get there, let's remind ourselves of this chart that when God made these promises, they're going to be fulfilled, but they haven't been fulfilled yet. Here's our timeline of history. These are the Old Testament dispensations here from the formation of Israel, the theocratic kingdom, the monarchy, then the exile from roughly from 585 to 535, then the restoration of the kingdom. It is this restoration, during the restoration to the land when they come back from Babylon, that is not the fulfillment of those restoration prophecies. Zechariah, the passage we're getting ready to look look at, was written during this time period. But he foretells a future restoration for both the northern and southern kingdom. Then we have the coming of Christ, the church age, and then the future millennium. The key covenant is the Abrahamic covenant of Genesis 12, 1 through 3, Genesis 17, 1 to 21, and other passages in Genesis. Then we have the real estate covenant given in Deuteronomy. That has not been fulfilled, so it must be fulfilled in the future. Then we have the Davidic covenant that there will be a, would be an eternal king, an eternal dynasty, an eternal throne. That has not happened and will not happen until Christ returns at the second coming and then the new covenant. So that's just a reminder for you of how this establishes the principle that God has a plan and a future for Israel. So anyone who is trying to destroy Israel or say they don't have a right to the land or there was not a future for Israel is standing in as a block as a stumbling block to the plan of God. Now, Zechariah, a couple of interesting passages I just want to highlight before we we uh, look at some modern application. Zechariah 10.3, God says, My anger is kindled against the shepherds, that's the leaders of Israel, of Judah. I will punish the male goats, for the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and will make them like his majestic horse in battle. So here he is going to... Um, Use Judah as an army. That hasn't happened yet. From them will come the cornerstone. From them the tent peg. From them the bow of battle. From them every ruler, all of them together. So that emphasizes the importance, the central role Israel will play in the future. Verse 5. They will be as mighty men, treading down the enemy in the mire of the streets in battle. Now that hasn't happened. Uh, treading down the... Um, enemy in the streets of battle, and they will fight, for the Lord will be with them, and the riders on horses will be put to shame. Then in verse 6 he says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Now Joseph has two, had two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Those are northern tribes. So when you see the phrase house of Joseph, he's not talking about the southern tribes, the, the, the kingdom of Judah, he's talking about the northern tribes, which is sometimes referred to simply as, a, as Ephraim. It was sometimes called Israel, sometimes it's called Ephraim. Here it's called the house of Joseph. So the specific prophecy in Zechariah 10 is that the house of Judah and the house of Joseph, northern and southern kingdoms, will be restored to the land. 
And I will bring them back, God says, because I have had compassion on them, and they will be as though I had not rejected them. Now, that cannot be said of what happened to the kingdom of Judah in that um, post-exilic period after they came back from Babylon. We studied last time in, the, in that period when, when um, uh, Antiochus Epiphanes is coming down that Israel is already getting caught up into legalism. They have given birth during that time to the to the legalistic religious organizations that will eventually evolve into the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They have exchanged uh, religious superficial legalism for the idolatry that they were punished for before the uh, before the captivity. But they're still not right with God. But here. Uh, they are going to be have a close relationship with God in this restoration mentioned in Zechariah chapter 10. Verse 7, Ephraim, that's the northern kingdom. Ephraim will be like a mighty man, and their heart will be glad as if from wine. Indeed, their children will see it and be glad. Their heart will rejoice in the Lord. Verse 8, God says, I will whistle for them to gather them together. So this is not talking about the present regathering. Okay, Jews are being regathered to the land, I believe, by a divine, by divine will, but, but it is not this regathering. This is a supernatural regathering. The one we have today is a precursor because as we're going to see when we get into Daniel 9, for the Antichrist to sign a peace treaty with Israel in the land, there must be a nation, there must be some geopolitical entity in the land uh, in order for this kind of uh, international treaty to be signed. There also has to be, some, as we'll see in a minute, some vacancy. Uh, something has to happen to what's currently existing on the Temple Mount. Now, all of that is, is important to factor into our understanding of what may be going on today. Let's continue in, in Zechariah in verse 9. God says, when I scatter them among the peoples, that's talking about the diaspora that occurred uh, initially in 586 B.C. and then again in 70 A.D. when God scattered the Jews among all the peoples. He says, when I scatter them among the peoples. Now, when, when, Zechariah, when God says this to Zechariah, this is, about the, this is in the 4th century B.C. So this, uh, I misspoke a second ago, this could not be the 586 B.C. scattering. That's already happened. They've already started to come back from that. This must be talking about some future scattering, and that would be the 70 A.D. scattering. Uh, when I scatter them among the peoples, they will, future tense, remember me in far countries. That's, what's, that's right now. When they're in the United States, they're in Germany, Britain, they're in uh, uh, Arab countries, they're in African countries, they're in Russia. At this point, God says, they will remember me in far countries, and they with their children will live and come back. So it's prophesying a future restoration of Israel to the land. And the land is the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and jo- jo- uh, Jacob in the Abrahamic covenant. Verse 10, God says, I will bring them back from the land of Egypt and gather them from Assyria, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. Notice, in the land of Gilead and Lebanon. So this is talking about the full extension of the land under the dimensions given in the Abrahamic covenant. Then in verse 11, And they will pass through the sea of distress, and he will strike the waves in the sea, so that all the depths of the Nile will dry up, and the pride of Assyria will be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt will depart. So it's talking about the fact that there are going to be supernatural events here. The Nile will dry up. 
Uh, just as the Jews pass through, through the dry Red Sea, the Nile will dry up. Assyria will be destroyed, which would be in a region of modern Iraq and Iran. And the scepter of Egypt, that is, Egypt as a ruling power, is going to be destroyed at the end of the tribulation. And then in verse 12, God says, I will strengthen them in the Lord, and in his name they will walk. So this is talking about the regenerate nation at the end of the tribulation. And then if we skip a couple of chapters over, there's the dire warning of Zechariah 12:2 about the nature of Jerusalem. Behold, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around, and when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. That is talking ultimately about the final assault on Judah and Jerusalem during the tribulation as a, at the beginning of the battle or the campaign of Armageddon. Then verse 3, it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured. Now this is a prophecy that up until the end of the tribulation, Jerusalem is going to be just a royal pain in history. It is going to be a major sore point for everybody's foreign policy. And we see that every night on the news today. And there's always going to be these assaults on Jerusalem. Uh, Verse 4, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and every rider with madness. But I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. So this is the events right at the end of the tribulation when God is going to protect and preserve the Jews as he destroys the armies of the Antichrist. And then in verse 9 and 10 we read, And in that day I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. That's a fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 12:3 that those who treat you lightly I will judge harshly. God is going to bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. Verse 10, where are we? Verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced. This is a reference to looking on Jesus Christ as their Savior and accepting them as as Messiah. This is when all Israel will be saved, when the Deliverer will come from Zion uh, and remove ungodliness from Jacob, according to Romans chapter 11, verses 25 through 27. Throughout history, it has been true, and it continues to be true, that Israel is still at the centerpiece of God's plan for history. Even though Israel is not the centerpiece of God's redemptive work in this dispensation, that does not mean that he um, has abrogated or put in abeyance the basic principles of the Abrahamic covenant that those who curse Israel, he will curse. Zechariah 2.8, we read, Thus says the Lord of hosts, He sent me after glory to the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. That is Israel. He is still God's favorite even when they are under divine, uh, divine discipline. Now, what is going on today with the attack from Islam? And I think that the attack from Islam is Satan's ploy to, de- to destroy Israel, because that is their agenda. And too often today, we are being besieged again and again and again by news reports, news reporters, politicians who are trying to communicate to us that Israel's not a problem. 
I mean, that Islam is not a problem. These are peaceful people. It's a peaceful religion. These are just a few extremists, a few terrorists who are doing this, who are carrying out these, these terrorist attacks. In fact, uh, it, 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 you really ought to think of some of these Palestinians more in the sense of freedom fighters than uh, terrorists because they're actually trying to recover their land. They have a legitimate claim to land and to some level of a Palestinian state. And we're being bombarded with this day in and day out, and we need to ask if any of this is really true. And the answer is no, it's not true. The news media is historically ignorant, and I'm not talking about ancient history. I'm talking about what took place in the 20th century. They have they have bought every lie, every propaganda ploy that the Palestinians and the Arabs have put out, and they always seem to, in the U.N. as well, always seem to side with, with the Palestinians and never side with Israel. Islam, therefore, in the last century, has gained an unprecedented strength. Now, the interesting thing is, as we're going to see, is at the beginning of the tribulation, you have a Western king make a peace treaty with Israel to allow them to rebuild the temple on the Temple Mount, which the, 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 the Arabs will not allow a Jew to go on the Temple Mount, not even to set foot on the Temple Mount right now, aside from official visits in order to investigate things, because since they, they won the Temple Mount in the 1967 war, uh, they have had oversight of the security and safety. In fact, it is Jewish police who protect the Temple Mount so that Arabs can go up to the uh, mosque and, and worship. And so Islam has grown incredibly strong in just the last few years, but there seems to be a picture at the beginning of a, the tribulation of a much weakened Islam. So we need to wonder what it is that's going to bring about a weakening of Islam so that those conditions can take place. Well, let's learn some things about Islam. Some of this we've gone over before, so I won't belabor it, but I just want to remind you of some things. First of all, over the past 50 years, the number, the total number of Muslims has grown 500% worldwide. In the last 50 years, they have grown 500%, whereas Christianity has only grown by 47% worldwide. The result is that Islam has 1.3 billion adherents worldwide. One out of every five people on the planet is a Muslim. While 85% of Muslims are not Arabs. Islam controls, completely controls the attitudes and actions of every single Arab country in the Middle East and North Africa. And in those nations, there are no legal alternatives. There are no options. Christianity is outlawed, and they live under a tyrannical, uh, a, a tyrannical regime of religion. Furthermore, in Europe, Islam is now the second largest religion, and it's expected to become the dominant religion in the next 20 years. Now, that causes me something to think about when I'm trying to uh, look at biblical prophecy, because if Islam does become the dominant religion in Western Europe, I want to know how is it that they're going to have then produce an antichrist that's going to allow Israel uh, to sign a peace treaty with Israel and allow them to rebuild the Temple Mount, because no Muslim is going to allow a Jew to rebuild the Temple. They, they in fact, the, the Muslims are doing everything they can to keep Israel from ever even authenticating the fact that there was a Temple on that 
uh, location ever. So right now in Western Europe, it's uh, is becoming more and more uh, Muslim. In fact, in France, there are one and a half million Muslims. That means there are six Muslims for every Christian in France. Six for every Christian. England has more than 2,000 mosques. And the U.S., almost 7 million Muslims and 1,370 mosques. Remember, 30 years ago, the U.S. only had 500,000 Muslims, so they've gone from 500,000 to 7 million in uh, the last 30 years. Now, we've gone over history of Islam before. Just to remind you, Muhammad was an illiterate camel driver who married a wealthy widow who was older than himself, so that allowed him to have a lot of leisure time and to enjoy going off to Club Med with the uh, camel drivers every now and then. And as he traveled around the uh, uh, Middle East, he spent some time with Christians and Jews, and he became somewhat entranced with certain aspects of their religious system. He rejected the most of it and decided that he would uh, maybe have his own. He, would, he learned uh, a technique of self-hypnosis. He learned a technique of self-hypnosis, and by doing that, or while under that, self-hypnotic trance, he uh, thought he was getting revelations and that the angel Gabriel appeared to him. And uh, he claimed that Gabriel dictated the Quran to him, which was 78,000 words, which he memorized and then taught to all of his, his followers. But Muhammad was not readily accepted by the Arabs. They already had a religious system. They had a polytheistic system of over 300 or about 360 gods, one of whom, the highest of whom, was a moon god named uh, uh, Allah. And Allah had three wives, three consorts. And, in fact, at the, uh, in the early stages, those three, those three wives, those three consorts were part of the system, but he, he got rid of them uh, fairly quickly. The, uh, uh, under, under, um, uh, in his, that part of his life, when he was in Mecca, he was ejected and he left and he went to uh, Medina. And there he gathered the riffraff of the desert around him and they became sort of a raiding band. And that was how they uh, raised their operational funds to expand their religious system. That's how the concept of jihad or struggle uh, came about. And so jihad was, was born from military ventures in God's name. Eventually, he returned to Mecca in 628 with a force of 10,000 men where they killed uh, 600 of 900 men in Mecca. And then he took as many, all the good-looking widows for his own harem. That always gives you some, how a man treats women always gives you some idea of his real motivations in developing a new religious system. Now, we've gone over the five pillars of the faith of Islam before, that they have to recite the Shahada every day, which is the statement that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. Uh, secondly, they have uh, five daily prayers toward Mecca, one in the morning, one at noon, one in late afternoon, then sunset and before bedtime. They must uh, kneel. Uh, they must pray while kneeling with their forehead pressed against the ground reciting the Shahada. They are to give alms. That's the third pillar. They are to fast during the month of Ramadan. That's no eating before sunrise and sunset. It's really a partial fast. Uh, and then fifth, they are to make a pilgrimage to Mecca. Many people think that the sixth step 
the sixth pillar is jihad. Jihad is uh, critical to uh, the whole system of Islam. For example, uh, we read in the Hadith, which is their second holy book, it's a commentary on the Quran, what is the best deed? To believe in Allah and his apostle? That is the best. What is this next? The implication is uh, the second best is to participate in jihad in Allah's cause. So that is their their highest thing next to belief in Allah. In Surah, that is in chapter 2, uh, verse 190, uh, the Quran states, Fight in the way of Allah against those who fight against you. But begin not hostility. See, everybody goes, see, they're, they're peaceful. They don't want to begin hostilities. But if you oppose them, if you are not uh, submitted to Allah, then you are fighting against them. And so that becomes the justification for them to attack non-Muslims. The very fact that they aren't a Muslim means that they are attacking them. So the first duty of any Islamic leader is to prosecute uh, jihad, against non-Muslims and to bring about the victory of Islam. If he doesn't do this, he's really better off dead than alive because he is considered to be corrupting the world according to the Quran. That's why secular rulers like Saddam Hussein and some of the other leaders, uh, more radical leaders in the Islamic world, uh, spend so much time giving money and building mosques and acting like a faithful Muslim is in order to have this facade of religious devotion. And much of, of uh, Islamic spiritual life is nothing more than that. It's just going through the motions. Another point of Islam is that when Muslims have conquered a territory, it can never be relinquished. It is forever and ever to be under the domain of Allah. And if any nation reclaims territory, any non-Islamic nation reclaims territory, then that is, then Allah has lost face. Now that's exactly what's happened in Israel is that uh, the Jews have come back to their land and reclaimed land that was once under the control of Allah, once under Islamic domination. And therefore, they can never let that rest uh, because that is a, uh, a real slap in the face to Allah. So it's impossible for them on the basis of their religious system to let Jews exist in the land. We've covered things in the past about what uh, Islam believes that they are the only true and eternal religion, according to the Quran, chapter 3, verse 17. Uh, Islam claims that Jesus, as well as David and Moses and uh, Abraham, were also Islamic prophets. Now, how that can come about when the Quran wasn't revealed until about 700 A.D., some uh, 1,500 years to 2,500 years after uh, David and Abraham and Moses, it's impossible. They never explain. Uh, so they uh, just read their history back and, and distort history. So the Quran is a historically revisionistic book from the very, uh, from its very inception. Uh, they reject any idea of pluralism, freedom of religion, because their goal is world domination. Islam means submission. And they are to su- cause the world, bring the world into submission to Allah, therefore there is a permanent state of jihad between Islam and the world. Now we have to ask the question, because we get it on the news media all the time, is Islam really a religion of peace? You have to understand what they mean. When you see one of these Islamic muftis get on television, or these spokesmen, and they say, well, Islam is really a religion of peace, you have to understand what they mean. It's doublespeak. 
Because for them, peace means submission to Allah. It doesn't mean non-violence. See, when we hear that a religion is a religion of peace, we hear non-violence. They mean it's a religion of peace that is bringing people into submission to Allah, and any method of doing that is... um, it's okay. It can be brought about through argument, through intrigue, through duplicity, lying, threats, terrorism, warfare, whatever it takes. The end justifies the means. Uh, terrorism is therefore a natural byproduct of Islam. For example, over half of all the terrorist organizations in the world are united by the religion of Islam. Uh, during the last 30 years, Muslim terrorists have attacked and murdered thousands of people, bombed and destroyed buildings, planes, and vehicles. They have committed terrorist acts in Kenya, Algeria, Indonesia, Tanzania, Egypt, Iran, Sudan, Libya, Yemen, Afghanistan, Syria, Lebanon, Israel, Jordan, France, South America, Austria, South America, and the United States. Arafat, in fact, Arafat and the PLO hold world records in uh, terrorist activities. Arafat himself is the most vicious and successful terrorist of all time. But look at some of the things that they have done. They have the record for the most airplane hijackings at one time, four. That was not equaled until September 11th. They have a record for holding the most hostages, 300 hostages held at one time. They hold the record for the largest ransom ever collected from an airline. They collected um, uh, five million from a ransom collected from Lufthansa. They also have the most number of people shot at an airport. They have attacked over 40 civilian aircraft, five passenger ships, embassies, fuel depots, armories, and they have sent hundreds of suicide bombers to kill hundreds, if not thousands, of innocent civilians. Yet for all of that, we award Arafat the Nobel Peace Prize. There is some inequity there. Since 1979, the U.S. Embassy in Tehran was taken over by Islamic extremists. In the fall of 1983, a Gulf Air 737 exploded from a bomb placed there by an Islamic terrorist. The United States has had the Marine barracks in Beirut attacked, killing 241 U.S. Marines in 1983. In 1988, Pan American Flight 103 was blown out of the skies over Scotland, killing 270. And the next year, Americans were among the 171 killed when the French UTA DC-10 jetliner was bombed by the Lebanese Islamic Holy War. U.S. embassies in Kenya and Tanzania were bombed in 1993. Uh, were bombed. The USS Cole was attacked and the World Trade Center was bombed in 1993 and then eventually destroyed in this latest attack in 2001. Furthermore, there's more and more people who are alleging a connection with Islamic terrorists to the bombings in Oklahoma City as well as TWA Flight 800. Somehow the press wants to overlook the fact that the common denominator here is Islam and that Islam, they claim, they continue to claim, is essentially a peaceful religion. Yet historically, Islam has been spread by the sword. Let's look at some passages in the Quran. Surah 328 states, Let not the believers take for friends or helpers unbelievers rather than believers. 
So they are forbidden from having any kind of friendship or close association with a non-Muslim. Now, you have to remember that must be applied to any kind of diplomatic treaty, to any kind of treaty between the PLO and Israel, any kind of peace treaty. It's forbidden for them to to enter into that, so that is just a religious fraud for them. Uh, let's go on and read the rest of it. If any do that, in nothing will there be any help from Allah. In other words, if, if some Muslim enters in or takes friends with unbelievers, they can't expect any help from Allah. Uh, the only exception is by way of precaution that you may guard yourselves from them. In other words, enter into a duplicitous relationship. But Allah remember, cautions you to remember himself, for the final goal is to Allah. In Surah 3, verse 118, we read, O ye who believe, take not into your intimacy those outside your ranks. They will not fail to corrupt you. They only desire your ruin. Rank hatred has already appeared from their mouths, and what their hearts conceal is far worse. We have made plain to you the signs if you have wisdom. So they are forbidden to have these relationships. Furthermore, in Surah 9-7, it states, How can there be a league, that is, any kind of treaty, before Allah and his, his apostle with the pagans? So how can we expect them to enter into a legitimate peace treaty uh, with Israel if they are forbidden to by their very... Um, by their very scriptures. Furthermore, the Quran itself calls for Muslims to wage continual war against non-Muslims. In Surah 2, 191, we're told, and slay them wherever you catch them, and turn them out from where they have turned you out, for tumult and oppression are worse than slaughter. But fight them not at the sacred mosque unless they first fight you there. That See, the fighting you there can be verbal. It can be just, just resisting uh, bring brought into submission to Allah. If they fight you, slay them. That's the command. Such is the reward of those who suppress the faith. In Surah chapter, in Surah 2, verse 193, it states, Fight them on until there is no more tumult or oppression. That is, until you have brought all into submission to Allah. That's the ultimate goal. So we could go on and read uh, dozens of more passages, but they continue to emphasize the principle of fighting and violence in order to bring non-Muslims into submission to Allah. In Surah 929, we read, Fight those who believe not in Allah nor the last day, nor hold that forbidden which hath been forbidden by Allah and his apostle, nor acknowledge the religion of truth. Even if they are of the people of the book, that would be Christians and Jews, until they pay the jizya, that is, until they come under the submission to Allah. So that is the goal of Allah, is to continue, is to bring people into submission, even if it involves violence. Surah 2, 193 states, fight them on until there is no more tumult and religion. So, the question we need to ask is, in light of these verses, what is this contention that of moderate Muslims that Islam is really a peaceful religion? And, and all of their protestations to the contrary, we ought to be asking why is it that the moderate Muslims haven't done more since September 11th to distance themselves from the radical Muslims? And why is it that even last week when Vice President Cheney went to Jordan that... Um, King Abdullah was not willing to give his support to an assault against uh, against uh, Saddam Hussein. 
And so what we see is that there's a lot of talk among the modern Muslims, but they don't really back up their action. Uh, we need to realize that there is this inherent terrorism there. For example, at the memorial service after uh, the national memorial service after September 11th, the Muslim cleric that gave the opening prayer was named Muzamil Sadiqi, and uh, he was invited to say the prayers in order to calm fears that, that the U.S. was going to have some kind of war against Muslims. But in the previous year, he was involved at a rally with, that also included representatives from terrorist organizations like Hamas and Hezbollah and made many statements supporting their terrorist activities. From the very beginning, Islam has been spread and continues to be spread by violence. Now, of course, the... The, the retort that we always get on this is, well, what about the Crusades? The Christians were spreading Christianity by, by violence. Well, they were, but not legitimately. Remember, Jesus said in John 18.36 to Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting that I might not be delivered up. So when Christians fight to spread Christianity... It is in violation of the Scriptures. It is in disobedience to Christ, and it is not consistent with with their Scriptures. But when the Muslim spreads the faith by violence, it is in obedience to their Scriptures. So we all have people in our various religious systems who aren't consistent and give each of us a black eye, but the issue is whether or not they are doing it in obedience to their Scriptures or in disobedience to their scriptures. The Quran clearly states that they are to fight and slay the pagans wherever you find them and seize them. So all of this plays a background for the Arab-Israeli conflict. So we need to ask, what is the motivation? What's the religious dimension there? Louis-René Beres, who's a political science prof at Purdue University, makes the following observation of the Oslo peace process. He states Jewish supporters of the Oslo peace process still do not understand the true sources of terrorism against Israel, projecting their own very generic conceptions of Western history upon the contemporary Middle East. They naively identify these sources within the standard theoretical frameworks of economic disenchantment and rising expectations. Palestinian terrorism is a conscious expression of blood sacrifice, including the blood of the Jews. And violence against the Jews is always an expression of what is sacred. So there is this holy dimension to it that is ignored by our Western secularism and secularized approach to peace in the Middle East. The Muslim worldview cannot conceive of religion divorced from politics any more than than most American and American politicians can understand how religion has anything at all to do with religious or how religion has anything to do with politics. In fact, the Islamic religious the Islamic Research Council states the Palestinian question is not a national issue nor is it a political issue. It is first and foremost an Islamic question. Andrew Sullivan, writing in the Chicago Sun-Times, states the Oslo peace process seems to have failed because of its pretense 
that the conflict is not a religious war. Much of the well-intentioned American mediation has assumed that compromises over territory, that is, land for peace, giving up the West Bank, giving up the Gaza Strip, that uh, this can settle the conflict. Western liberalism, with its easy optimism that religious doesn't matter anymore, that religion doesn't matter anymore, simply cannot comprehend that for most people it still does, especially in the Holy Land. Now, how did all of this develop? How did, what's the historical background to the modern crisis? Remember, number one, Jewish immigration began in the 19th century. At that time, much of the land known as uh, Palestine was under uh, Syrian control. It was a desert. It was not productive. The Arabs that lived there were Bedouins, and they were not landowners. By eight, 1897, this Jewish immigration was formalized into the Zionist movement, and, there, and Jews were moving back to Israel, and they were purchasing the real estate for themselves. So they were, the, the vast majority of the land was starting to be owned by Jews. The British uh, established a mandate in 1920 uh, due to the influence of evangelicals in the British government who understood Israel's historic right to the land. And they established the boundaries on the map that you see uh, that would be the land that would be given as the national home to the Jews. That included not only all the land on the to the west of the Jordan, but also all of the territory that is now modern Jordan. However, the Arabs, as they are wont to, rioted in 1929 and killed a number of Jews, and that and they began to put a lot of pressure on the British to back off of the British mandate. So they offered another solution that violated their own mandate and the Balfour Declaration, and they gave all the land to the east of the Jordan River to that uh, became known as the Transjordan. They gave all that land to the Arabs and the rule of the Hashemite Bedouin tribe, and this created the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. The new state of Israel that was left would have had 23% of the original land given to them, not the 100% the Palestinian propaganda maintains. Uh, Arabs got 77% of the land. That is at this division. <clears throat> One thing we should... Remember, is that King Hussein of Jordan stated in 1968 that Jordan is Palestine and Palestine is Jordan. See, it was just after that. It wasn't until about 69 or 70 that the term Palestine started to be used to refer to the land uh, of, of Israel, I mean, in a modern context. Historically, it was applied much earlier, but pal- there was no such thing as a Palestinian until 1969. The term Palestinian still referred to Jews. But Hussein, King Hussein, said that Jordan is Palestine, Palestine is Jordan. And uh, even Arafat recognized that in 1974 when he said what you call Jordan is actually Palestine. So they've reversed themselves. They've redefined all the terms, and that's all part of their propaganda ploy. But in 1947, this Brit- British partition of 46, which gave Israel all the land to the west of the Jordan, that failed. And in 1947, they had to partition the land again. And this time, only 23% of the land was to go to Israel, and the rest would go to the Arab states. So the Jews start continue to get a shrinking uh, portion of the land. At that time, the term Palestine was applied equally to both the Jewish and the Arab population. In fact, the Jerusalem Post 
was called the Palestinian Post. When Israel was established in 1947, the Arabs invaded. Uh, Jordan annexed the Strip. This is the the, uh, the gray area here. They annexed this Strip. This is the West Bank. And they annexed that, and Egypt annexed the Gaza Strip. And the Arab governments, because these five Arab nations were going to invade, the Arab governments told the Arabs living in the land to flee their homes. That's what created the homeless refugees, not the Jews. Uh, the Jews did not expel them. It was the Arabs who told them to flee. So the reason there were Arab refugees is because the Arab nations violated the U.N. mandate and invaded the land. Now, who are the Palestinians? Who are the Palestinians? Well, first of all, we've often thought the term derived from the Philistines, but it doesn't. Uh, Randy Price has done an excellent job of researching all of this in his book, Unholy War, which I highly recommend. And in there he shows that the, the Greeks had a word, uh, palio, which meant wrestler. And the Greeks loved word plays. And when the Jews transliterate or translated the the Septuagint, they did not use the the, the Greek word uh, Palestino or Palestino for Palestine. They still use a transliterated Hebrew word Philistine. But the uh, the Greek word Palio means a wrestler. And see, that was the name of Israel. Israel wrestled with God back there in Genesis. And when God struck, when the angel of the Lord struck his hip, and Israel meant one who wrestles with God. And so the Greeks called it Palestine because they were making a pun, uh, using their own word. And so even Josephus and Philo used that terminology, Palestine, to refer, uh, to the land. The Palestinians, the so-called Palestinians of today, are not historically historical residents in the land. They are descendants of a group of migrant workers who came to Palestine starting in the late 1800s, starting about 1875. They came from all over the Middle East, North Africa, and even Europe. They came from Balkans, Greece, Syria, uh, Egypt. Uh, there were Turks, Armenians. Uh, Italians, Persians, Germans, Afghans, Turks, Sudanese, Samaritans, Hungarians, Tartars, Scots, English, and French. They all blended together as uh, migrant workers just looking for work. They never owned the land. They never had a desire for a government or an independent state. Uh, it never existed as such, and the Arabs never sought to declare it as such. In fact, these immigrants were not landowners. In, at the time, in 1947, the, the Palestinians, the Arabs, only owned 3% of the land in Israel. Now, in fact, in the 1911 Encyclopedia Britannica notes that, that in 1911, the uh, nationalities in Palestine spoke over 50 different languages, so they didn't have a, even have their own, their own native language. So there is no such thing as a Palestinian. It's not a nationality. It's just a descendants of these, uh, these uh, itinerant workers. Now, the Palestinians are, are Islamic, and since 1993, the Islamic Jihad and Hamas have launched over 150 suicide attacks, over 50 in just the last six months. 
Uh, since the Palestinians began the Al-Aqsa Intifada in September 2000, there have been over 6,000 attacks on Israel uh, military facilities, Jewish communities, and public places and private vehicles. The question we need to ask is, is peace in the Middle East even possible? Uh, for example, they have various slogans that they like to use. Um, the Palestinian Authority Mufti Ikrami Sabri in his weekly Friday prayer sermon at the Al-Aqsa Mosque on July 11, 1997 stated, O Allah, destroy America for she is ruled by Zionist Jews. And then there's an Islamic slogan, kill the Jews on Saturday and kill the Christians on Sunday. Furthermore, Hamas issued the following communique. Uh, all forces of our people backed by our Arab and Islamic nation are determined on persisting and escalating the Intifada until er eradication of occupation from all usurped lands. They want to get rid of all the Jews. Point two, they urge the Palestinian Authority to break away from the so-called peace process once and for all, adopt the resistance program, and refuse all forms of coordination and negotiations and security meetings with the enemy and not to be deceived by American promises. And third, they ask their people scattered throughout the world, those living in non-Arab lands, to display more interactions with our people's intifada in the occupied homeland and share with them in the duty of resisting occupation. That means they're calling on Palestinians who live in the U.S. to rise up here and to be involved in terrorism. There are over 700 uh, Palestinians, or over 7,000 Palestinians who live in New Jersey alone, so that certainly poses a threat. It is the Muslim clerics who call for the destruction of the Jews and and the Christians. For example, uh, let me back up a minute, get this other quote. Um, for example, uh, Edwin Locke, who's the, the uh, dean's professor of leadership and motivation, at the R.H. Smith School of Business at the University of, Mer uh, uh, of Maryland writes, the two sides are not equal. Arab, every Arab country is a monarchy, theocracy, or military dictatorship. Freedom of speech, property rights, free elections, and the separation of church and state are almost non-existent. Israel is the sole country in that entire region that recognizes individual rights. The nonviolent, non-PLO supporting Arab who lives in Israel enjoys far greater freedom than he would in an Arab nation. Fifteen uh, percent of the uh, population in Israel is Arab. They're, they're Jewish. Um, they are citizens in Israel, and they have all of the rights and freedoms that they would not have if they lived outside of the land. And yet uh, we don't hear anything about them. We just hear about those who did what the Arabs wanted them to do. In uh, 1947, those who fled, that created the refugee population. Over 600,000 Arabs fled Israel, and uh, approximately the same amount of Jews were expelled by the Arabs. But the Jews didn't expel any Arabs. But when the Arabs expelled the Jews from Yemen, from Saudi Arabia, from Iraq, Iran, uh, Syria, and Egypt, they confiscated all of their possessions. They, the only thing they could leave with was the clothes on their back. And yet somehow Israel made room for all of them, brought them in, and rebuilt, rebuilt the land. The Muslims are inherently against all of the, all of the uh, Jews, and their desire, their goal, is to destroy them. In fact, Yasser Arafat stated to uh, Arab ambassadors in Stockholm on January 30, 1996, 
that we Palestinians will take over everything, including all of Jerusalem. We plan to eliminate the state of Israel and establish a Palestinian state. That is their goal. Their goal is not peace. It's not coexistence. It is to destroy the Jews and to wipe out uh, Israel. And for that reason, I think that the United States has been brought into this conflict in order to keep that from happening, because I think in the long run, we're going to be preparing, we could very well be preparing things for the coming tribulation, at least in the sense that we're going to be used to destroy the power of Islam, and that will set things up for the future, because uh, as it now exists, Islam is growing very powerful. But in the end times, there is no place for a powerful Islamic presence. So something must happen. So that gives us a different perspective, and it all comes back to the fact that God's plan for Israel is the center point of history, and it is the center point of the future. And therefore, we as Christians must take as one point of application that we must make sure that we elect leaders in Washington that are pro-Israel above everything else. It doesn't matter about uh, tax breaks. It doesn't matter about economic plans. It doesn't matter about anything, because if we are pro-Israel, then God blesses those who bless Israel. If we are not, then God curses those who curse Israel. It doesn't matter what else we do. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, Father, we thank you for this opportunity to uh, not only look at your word this evening, but also to look at its application in terms of current events and the frame of reference it gives us in terms of understanding current events. Above all, we realize that the center point of history is your plan of salvation, focusing on the cross, and it is through Jesus Christ that all the nations are ultimately blessed, as he is the greater son of David and the true seed of Abraham. Father, we thank you for this time this evening, what we've studied. We pray that you'd help us to understand these things even more as we watch the news and hear about events around us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.